Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello, and welcome to Running Mate, a podcast for Brits about the US election. In today's episode, what to look out for on election night. You know, Joe, I I ran because of you. I ran because of Barack Obama, because you did a poor job. If I thought you did a good job, I would have never run. The finishing line is in sight as one of the most exhausting U.S. election campaigns in memory comes to an end. Anyone who's responsible for that many deaths should not remain as president of the United States of America. Election night approaches with a pandemic taking more than 220,000 lives and COVID-19 running rampant across the states. An economic disaster is looming. Joe Biden has had a strong lead in the polls for months, but few are willing to confidently predict a Donald Trump defeat after the shock of 2016. The strategy seems to be to call Biden a criminal. Why is that? He is a criminal. He's a criminal. He got caught, read his laptop, and you know who's a criminal? You're a criminal for not reporting it. A record number of Americans have already voted, and the big set-piece events, notably the painful-to-watch TV debates, are over. Come on, this guy is a dog whistle about as big as a foghorn. All that's left is to sit back and enjoy, if that's the right word, election night. So what are the polls saying about the key swing states? And does Trump still have a path to victory? And will we actually find out on the night who the president will be? Or is this the start of months of deadlock decided by the Supreme Court? Hello, my name's Graham Demonick from HuffPost UK team and joining me today are two of my colleagues from the US. I've got Ariel Edwards-Levy, who's a senior reporter and polling editor. Hello, Ariel. How are you? Hi, good. Thank you. And Paul Blumenthal, a uh, senior reporter at HuffPost. Hello, Paul. How are you doing? I'm well, thanks. Great. Um, so for anyone coming to the podcast for the first time, this is what we're trying to do. I'm a British journalist living and working in America, and at HuffPost UK, we wanted to try and produce something that made sense of the US election. And this is our last episode before the vote itself, so we wanted to provide um, our listeners the ultimate guide to election night and what happens thereafter. So ultimate guide, guys, no pressure at all. This is the, the last word on American politics. So probably the best place to start, I reckon, is the state of the race right now. Ariel, what's the... Who's ahead? Joe Biden seems to be ahead. Everyone seems to be aware of that. Um, what's, what, what's the story there? Is it, is it a strong lead? Is it, is it comparable to Clinton's lead four years ago? What's your, what's your take of, of, of the state of the race right now? I think the sort of overwhelming story of the election this time around has been a campaign where a million things happen and not all that much actually ends up changing in the polls. Right. So what we've seen so far is throughout basically the entire course of this campaign, um, Joe Biden has led by, you know, a sort of varying amount. And 
in the last couple of weeks, um, Joe Biden was actually seeing, you know, low double digit um, margins in national polls. That seems to have settled down maybe a little bit, you know, um, on average nationally, he's maybe up about nine points, which is a fairly solid lead. Um, that's considerable, that's out of margin of error. Um, it, so it's not a guarantee that he's going to win. And, you know, there are certainly, again, we don't vote nationally, but that's definitely, if you have that number, you would rather be in his position than in President Trump's position. Right, right. Yeah, how, Paul, what do you make of the state of play at the moment? Is that is that broadly how you see it? Yeah, I mean, I agree with Ariel about, you know, where it looks right now. Uh, you know, the polls have been relatively stable as they have for, for Trump's approval rating throughout his entire presidency. He's pretty much modulated between a low of, you know, 39% and a high maybe of 45, but he can't seem to get uh, much higher than that. And it seems no matter what the news is, it doesn't seem to change too much, a fluctuation of a point or two here and there. I mean, clearly the coronavirus pandemic has, and, and Trump's response to it seems to have hurt his polling among senior citizens, which we've seen. Um, and that that's sort of a big change from 2016 and recent elections for Republicans who have dominated that demographic. Is the, is the race tighter though, if we look at the at the state by state polling as you say Ariel you know we don't we, the US doesn't vote nationally and we'll, we'll, we'll get to that in, in a little bit into in terms of talking about the electoral college but is is the are the key states are they are they, are they closer than that and how what's what's the story there I would say that it's maybe a little bit closer looking at the state polls but it's been one of those things where it hasn't been very consistent. Um, it's sort of depended over the past couple of weeks at what day it is exactly and which polls you're looking at. So I wouldn't say that we're seeing right now a dramatic mismatch between the state polling and the national polling. There are you know, a couple of states where it is a little bit closer. And to the extent that um, Donald Trump is looking at a path to victory, it involves basically a couple of those states being close enough that there is conceivably a polling error that swings for him, you know, winning those by a narrow margin, which again is not inconceivable. Right, right. Paul, what do you what, what do you what do you think is it the the race a bit narrower when we when we look at the states? And is there are there states as a political journalist you're looking at in particular that will be will be more interesting to tell us which way this one's going? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think that from what we see from the state polls, it's you know, a bit closer in some of these swing states, of course. When you hear that sound, we're going to pause the conversation to explain something in a little bit more detail. So what are some of the terms that we'll hear on election night? The language in US politics is a bit different to the UK. At home, we'll refer to constituencies that are up for grabs as marginals. But in the US, they'll call them swing states or sometimes toss-ups, which is never used in the UK. You'll also hear a lot about blue states, which is where people tend to vote Democrat. Take New York, for example. Or red states, which often go Republican, such as Texas. States that go either way are sometimes called purple states. These can also be called battleground states. Hello, Pennsylvania. Another phrase you'll hear a lot of is absentee voting. 
This has traditionally been when voters can't physically vote in person on election day, so instead vote by mail. What Americans call mail-in voting is more often referred to in the UK as postal voting, which is admittedly a little pedantic, but what's important is how states have expanded this form of voting during the pandemic. In this early voting, another bit of jargon, more than 27 million ballots have already been cast. And, you know, everybody's still paying attention to Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, the three Rust Belt states here in America uh, that flipped from Democratic to Republican in 2016 and handed Trump the White House. So those are kind of the the big states that, I mean, if he loses those three, it will be very hard for him to win re-election. And then, you know, there are other swing states like Florida, which is always incredibly close, and some other sunbelt states like Arizona, North Carolina, and Georgia as well. And if and if we've got a pretty good idea of where the polling is, and if if, if Biden's in the lead nationally and in in the in the key states, what can what can change in the last few days? What can what can move the dial? Um, I know. Well, we all we will know that the Trump campaign is trying to exploit this Hunter Biden. I'll say it in. Ex, uh, inverted commas scandal they, they're pushing that quite hard and I don't really want to get involved in that too much if you want to read HuffPost's take on why that's a that's a non-story you certainly can we've got an excellent piece on that what do you think can change change anything in the last few days um, if anything at all Paul what do you what do you what do you think they'll try and do if, if anything to to, 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 to to close close the gap every day it becomes harder and harder to change the outcome of the vote you know if a poll today says that the electorate is plus 10 Biden, people are voting within that range of, you know, the view of the electorate, and their opinions can't change anymore. So it becomes very hard to change what the outcome of this might be, uh, based on some kind of late October surprise. I mean, we all remember the second Comey letter, which uh, sort of precipitated the tanking of Hillary Clinton's numbers in 2016. Uh, you know, one of the things that makes it much harder to pull something like that off this time around is that there are many fewer undecided voters than there were in 2016. Um, so, I mean, uh, you know, you don't want to, like, say that anything is uh, already written in stone, but it, it just every day it becomes harder and harder for Trump to change the trajectory of this election and, you know, his messaging from being going from you know, coronavirus is great, everyone should take it, and 60 minutes is bad. Uh, it sort of makes no sense at this point. Right, right. Yeah, Ariel, what do you think, what do you think the Trump campaign is trying to do in the last, in the last week? Will they, they seem to be trying to throw the kitchen sink at it and, see, and hope something, something lands? You know, I don't think that we're looking at a poll-tested, concerted, lockdown effort to get out a final message that's, you know, coherent and cohesive and has been rigorously thought out. I think we're seeing basically the Trump administration being exactly what the Trump administration has been throughout its history. And you look at something like the Hunter Biden revelations, I think the issue there in terms of that making much of a dent is that when you look back to 2016 and the sort of narratives that were percolating, the idea that Hillary Clinton was a corrupt candidate, that she 
had done something with the e with her emails that was inappropriate. That was something that got traction throughout the campaign. You know, we talk about this as being a sort of last second October surprise development. And what happened was that put it back in the news, but it sort of reactivated a strain of thinking about her and of a weakness of her campaign that had been there throughout the entire cycle. And with Joe Biden, I think the Trump campaign has struggled to find a similarly effective message. I don't think that from what we've seen, that's quite as likely to resonate in the same way. It's hard to craft a narrative right now that's not about coronavirus, I think, to some extent, because that's just something that everybody is living with to some extent. It's hard to get around the things that people are actually experiencing in their day-to-day -day life. So I think at this point, the Trump administration just seems to be going sort of full steam with whatever it's already doing. The Supreme Court is obviously going to be something that people are talking about, but I don't know if that's an issue that's going to be really motivational to swing voters or voters who are low propensity or anything like that. So at this point, I think you're looking for either something completely unexpected, which by definition, I have no idea what that would be, or for things to continue largely in the same vein that they have for much of this election. And I want to move on to election night itself and, and, and how that will how that will play out. Um, but guys, can, can you do um, the, the folks back home a favor and explain to them how the electoral college system works? Which of you wants to ex explain to the great British public how the electoral college system works? Ariel, can you give that a go? Sure. And I mean, this is one of those things where you can go down several layers about electors versus voting directly for the president or things like that. The basic complication that's going to come into play here right now is that there are two numbers you can look at. One is the popular vote, which is very simple. It's just how many people in the U.S. voted for candidate A, how many people in the U.S. voted for candidate B. That is not what determines who wins the election. What determines who wins the election is each state has a certain number of electoral votes and whoever wins each state gets the votes of that state broadly, and that's what decides the winner. For the most part, it's winner takes all. There are a few exceptions where the states can split votes because, of course, there are. But I think that's the very broad gist of it. Right. And, Paul, the, what's, a, what's a magic number we're looking for? Is it, is it, is it 270? Is it, have I got that right? It's, that's the number. Yeah, 200 and the first person to 270 wins. It's out of... You know, we have 538 uh, electoral votes. It's pretty much one per every member of Congress and Senate. So every state gets a minimum of three and then plus an additional number based on the member number of members of the House of Representatives that they have. And then that takes you to 535 and then plus three for the uh, District of Columbia, where I'm living right now, which is not a state where 700,000 people reside in. Uh, have no representation in our Congress. Right, right. So is it? Is it? I mean, I, again, this this is probably a whole episode on on its own. But is it? A, is it? A, is it a fair system? What What are the main problems that people identify with it as a, as a reason why it's bad and something else should be should be in its in its stead? Well, I think that you know the. I mean the 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 basic complaint is that the person who wins the most votes should be the winner in a democratic system of government. Um, obviously, we have sort of a mediated democracy here where the states get to uh, decide outside of that simple popular vote. 
But the fact of the matter is that, you know, we're talking about Trump and polls and people have said, you know, it's possible that he could win the Electoral College while losing the popular vote by up to 5 million people. And how is that a legitimate uh, presidency? How can you legitimately rule, especially in the way that Donald Trump has, uh, by losing the popular vote by so much? I mean, the other clear complaints are that it, you know, candidates wind up focusing on just a small select group of states to campaign, and so many people get left out of these presidential campaigns. I mean, the state with the most Trump voters is actually California. Right, right. And Donald Trump isn't going to go campaign for those voters because they don't matter. They're, they're in a blue state that he can just write off, but he's not reaching out to even his own voters. I think one thing just to note is that this is something where, because of the way the demographics of the country have developed, it's becoming more of a possibility than it was in the past. And of course, you've seen two high-profile cases very, in fairly recent history where there was that split, which was not something that was happening before. And if you look at how people are reacting to this, right now, opinions are pretty much politicized. Democrats, sort of understandably, are kind of furious right now at the idea that the popular vote does not determine the winner because they've now twice lost out on a presidential election that way. But it's something that I think has become very polarized because it has led to um, polarized outcomes so far. But we've got the system that we've got and we'll be focusing on a number of of, of, of key swing states. What are the, what are the ones to, 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 to look out for? We touched on the kind of um, Midwest ones, and is there a phrase that the the the, the road to the White House is, is is always paved through the the Midwest or something some something to that something to that effect? Well, yeah, I mean, I think you know we we said Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, the states that delivered the White House to Trump last time that he won by an extremely extremely thin margin. You know, tens of thousands of votes we're talking about, very very small in those states. But you know, when you're watching on election night. The first things to watch for are the states that are going to be able to report, uh, you know, the total vote er as early as possible. And that's important this year because of the coronavirus pandemic. A lot of people are voting by mail and some states aren't allowed to process or count those votes until the polls close or until the morning of Election Day. And so states like you look at states like Florida or North Carolina or Ohio, and they can process and count these votes ahead of time. And so they might be able to report, you know, a whole tranche of early votes very early in the night. And so, I mean, I think if we see Joe Biden winning Florida being called or North Carolina or Ohio, especially, I think it becomes safe to assume that he is winning the election. There's been some reporting that uh, the Trump campaign says is their thinking is that Trump as a sort of baseline needs to win Florida, Georgia, Iowa, Ohio. So those are states where if it's going overwhelmingly Biden, once we have enough votes from all the different streams, have a sense of where those going, that that's probably a pretty good sign for the Biden campaign. If those are close, then you start looking at other states, Arizona, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, you know, those Rust Belt states again, that in addition that Trump won narrowly the last time. But I think he needs to start with winning those big couple of big states. And if that doesn't look in reach for him, that tells us something. If it's close, that tells us it could be a longer night. Right. Do you, th do you think do you think we'll have an out? We'll, we'll know who's won on election night. I know we've touched on this and how complicated it's going to be. But what are the chances of that happening, Paul? 
I mean, I think that that's going to probably unfortunately revolve around Florida, <laughs> you know, the, the, the dreaded state right. of America, right. <laughs> American presidential politics. So let's talk Florida, a state that both Trump and Biden have been campaigning hard in in recent months. It is, after all, the nation's largest swing state. With its 29 electoral college votes, winning Florida is essential for the presidential hopefuls. Obama won Florida in 2008 and 2012, and Trump defeated Clinton there in 2016, but by only 1.2%. To give it some context, the last Republican to win the White House without winning Florida was Calvin Coolidge in 1924. Why, 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 does, why does Florida always get such a, 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 bad, a, 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 bad, a bad rap? People in the UK might not quite understand that. It does seem to be the punchline to a lot of jokes, both in politics and, and beyond. Is there an explanation for that? Florida man, I, I hear about a lot. Best explanation I've ever heard for that is that Florida has uh, very strong uh, transparency laws around its uh, police reports. And so it's very easy to get a police report there. And so Florida men committing stupid acts or crimes are far more often writ written about than in other states. As for elections, uh, you know, Florida is a very evenly divided state politically. And, uh, you know, the past three gubernatorial elections there were decided by about 1%. Um, you know, the, the largest presidential win in the past 30 plus years was Bill Clinton winning it by six. George W. Bush won it in 2004 by 5%. But every other victory has been around 1% or uh, you know, in the year 2000, when it was decided by, by 537 votes. And, and that mean we could have the prospect of, of, of Trump, what, squatting in the White House because he's not, not, not going to accept the result. I mean, is there, how messy, how messy is this going to get over the, over the next few weeks? I mean, Trump's indicated he's, well, he's not said he will uh, agree to a, a, a peaceful transfer of power. So, is it likely to get messy, do you think? I feel like there's this sort of danger of writing this sort of disaster fanfic ahead of time where you go, okay, what's the worst that could possibly happen? I bet this is going to be chaos. And I, there's certainly a potential for chaos of various kinds, but it's one of those things where I think that there's not hugely a lot to be gained from sort of trying to speculate on specific scenarios about what Trump could or might do. I think there's probably a pretty reasonable chance that this ends up looking like any election where the winner wins and the loser loses and there's an unusual amount of tweeting and things get sorted out regardless. Yeah, I mean, I think that there are, you know, complicated scenarios that take a long time to explain about how this might uh, go sideways. But I, I agree that, you know, that, uh, you know, Donald Trump boasts a lot and likes to uh, keep people waiting to watch the next episode. Um, so, you know, he'll say something that will keep you hanging and won't give a definitive answer. Uh, well, the, you know, the United States Constitution says that on January 20th, there's a new president and Donald Trump can sit in the White House and someone can pick up the chair that he's sitting in and take him outside if that's what he wants to do but he would no longer be the president if he loses the election. 
We'll come back to Ariel and Paul later, but I've also chatted to Jeffrey Young, who's HuffPost's health reporter. We talked about the US healthcare system that always shocks people in the UK and whether an NHS style overhaul is something Americans would want if they ever knew what it was. So, Jeff, what are the big problems with the US healthcare system as you see it? So, if I can summarise what people in the UK think, they probably have this perception of you not being allowed access to emergency care unless you show your credit card, that, that costs of healthcare bankrupt people. I mean, I'd love to say to people that that's largely a myth, but, but it <laughs> quite often isn't. But... Can you explain a little bit about about the problems with it and, and why and why it perhaps isn't it, it why it's perhaps a broken system? Yeah, well, I mean, I'll, I'll start by saying that like those those things that you said are very often actually true. Right. Um, I mean, I, I wrote a story years ago about a guy who was laid up in an emergency room bed and half out of it, and someone from Billing came in and asked him where his wallet was. Right. He took it out of his pants to get his credit card. Right. Right. Um, right. That guy later ran for office. He was so angry. I don't know if he won, though. Um, but the, so the, the, I, I suppose a way, I mean, this is a big bite to, to take, right? Because it's, a, it's an incredibly large, convoluted, complex system. And people interact with it in the U.S. in many, many different ways, which, of course, is very different from, you know, the NHS is the NHS, right? And there, of course, there's private service doctors and all those things. But, like, people have a common experience. Here... What's the best way to put it? I think that the number one issue is the actual price of things. So, you know, start at the very beginning. How much does a medicine cost? How much does a surgical procedure cost? The actual price that the people providing those things set on it. Um, and, you know, I just, I, I won't go through a bunch of numbers, but there's a, an organization called the International Federation of Health Plans, which is a sort of international group of health insurance, private health insurance companies. And every few years they do this study where they put up prices for different things. Um, and compared to the UK and nine other wealthy countries in the US, in virtually every category, uh, America, the American price is the highest and sometimes by double what the price may be in the UK for what the NHS may pay for an angioplasty, for example. Um, and that's rooted in the fact that there are many different sources of coverage, right? So about half of Americans have health insurance they get from their employers. So it's either them or their spouses, partners, dependents, what have you. Um, and then the other half is a mix of government programs like Medicare for the elderly, mainly for the elderly, Medicaid for the poor, mainly children and elderly people who live in nursing homes. And then the veterans have their own system and every one of them operates differently. And every one of them pays different amounts of money for things and expects the patient to pay a different amount for things. And if that all sounds crazy to anyone listening, like that's it is in practice quite crazy. Yes, I get very confused about what things like copay and deductibles mean and how much I'll ultimately be paying for things. So have these flaws been exposed by COVID? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, I wrote I wrote about this recently, actually, um, in a sort of broad way. And I'll summarize it here. I mean, it starts with the fact that when you have such a kind of multi-siloed, inscrutable system that uses terminology that you were just describing. And people who've lived here their entire lives get confused by this deductible and that co-insurance and that co-payment and all of these 
terms about how much it's going to cost you. Um, so there's that too. And just for instance, like I had to get a COVID test recently. I didn't know whether the, our insurance would even cover it. I still don't know. I ended up going to a place that gave it out for free. Right, right. But like that's, and I have been writing about U.S. health policy <laughs> for 20 years. Right. I know more about this than most people who don't, uh, other, except for, you know, perhaps some hospital administrators and people with PhDs in health policy. And I, every time I personally have a healthcare need, that fear you were talking about of well, what's this going to cost me is there. Now, imagine if you think you have COVID and now imagine if you're poor, maybe you don't have insurance, maybe you have terrible insurance because, you know, mentioning that you know, 90% of Americans do have some form of health coverage. A lot of it is bad health coverage. Right, right. That right. leaves you on the hook for a lot of costs. Now then you then the next thing I would point out is that, you know, it's very, very clear from all of the numbers that this disease is hurting black Americans, Hispanic Americans, and, and like non-white people much, much more so than white people. Um, and a lot of that has to do with the sort of healthcare infrastructure. A term people in the UK will have heard of is Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act. 20 million people who didn't have health care gained it. Did that make much difference or was that a, if you pardon the metaphor, a sticking plaster? Well, honestly, it is a bit like that. Right. Although I, wouldn't, I wouldn't want to diminish it too much because for those 20 million or so people, this was a massive improvement in their lives, particularly those who, whose incomes are low enough to qualify for the expanded access to Medicaid, the program I mentioned before that's for low-income people. Um, because they couldn't afford any insurance at all before, likely. And then you've got all the people who had, who were subject to being excluded from the private insurance market because of black marks on their medical history. Um, so the, the Affordable Care Act helped a lot in those ways. And there's a lot of evidence that it's reduced medical bankruptcies and debt and things like that for obvious reasons. Well, e even if it wasn't revolutionary, it has had benefits. But Trump wants to overturn it. Why? There, I, I say there are two main things. The first is, and I don't want to sound glib about this because it's, I believe it's true, um, for Trump and a lot of people in the Republican Party, merely the fact that this is something that Barack Obama and Democrats were able to pass through and make law despite their opposition to it, seems to be cause enough to try and kill it. Right. Um, then there's the then there's the sort of ideological piece of this, and I, I think that the, I think this has outlasted its usefulness for Republicans, and they don't realize it yet. But I suppose we'll find out after the election. But since the Affordable Care Act was in Congress in 2010, before it even passed, um, one of the chief promises of the Republican Party to their voters is we're going to kill this thing. Right. It's terrible. It's socialism. Right. Now, in in doing that, they made up a lot of insane stuff about the law, about you know death panels where old women would be put uh, put to death because they, they it wasn't worth spending money to save their lives, like all this scaremongering, with very little engaging uh, about the actual shortcomings of the healthcare system prior to the Affordable Care Act, the problems with the Affordable Care Act itself, or the problems that remain unsolved by the Affordable Care Act. So what are, so what are, what are Trump and Biden actually proposing well first i'd i'd, um, I'd recommend that uh, people look up the story that my our, our colleague jonathan Cohn and i wrote about this laying out the two plans and the way they contrast to to sum it up here um as you mentioned trump wants to get rid of the affordable care act which would result among other things in about 20 million or so people who currently have health coverage not having any anymore and not really having a fallback option yeah so those people would just be left in the lurch i i mean I'm, I'm not I'm not the sort of person who knows how to make those forecasts, but that number actually seems low to me. Yeah. Um, but 
he doesn't really have, it's not as though he has another way of achieving the same outcome where more people are able to afford going to the doctor or the hospital when they get sick. He's got, and I know this is gonna sound dismissive, but I've been writing about this for years. He makes a lot of promises that sound the same. I will protect anyone who has a pre-existing medical condition from insurance companies, or I will make your drug prices cheaper. Right. But the actual proposals he has out there in the policies either do virtually nothing or do the opposite. So for example, you know, with the Affordable Care Act plans, as I mentioned, uh, that law says that insurance company can't tell you, no, we will not cover you because you've had cancer or asthma in the past or what have you. Or they can't say, well, we'll charge you more because you have diabetes. Um, so Trump is talking about how important this is to him. But his administration has allowed insurance back onto the market that does those things. So it's it's right there. And so there's really nothing more to say about it than that. Um, as for Biden, much like the Affordable Care Act itself, and Biden is very much a sort of a centrist, cautious Democrat, um, he would leave pretty much everything we already have in place. But then if he could get it through the Congress, would offer additional financial assistance for people who can't afford the insurance they have now. Uh, so bigger subsidies for bigger subsidies and for more people. He also proposes to create what we call here a public option, which would be kind of as though, you know, the NHS were operating alongside private insurance companies and you could pick which one you sign up for. So in theory, that could be good because the government doesn't have a profit motive. So the theory is that, you know, the public option would cost you less because you're not in, because the government's not an insurance company trying to make money off of you. They're just trying to cover their expenses. Do you think the system will ever change? Does it need a radical like Bernie Sanders to do that? I have always believed that what it will take for Americans to open their minds more to something, to as big of a change as something like Medicare for All, would be when people in the upper ranges of the middle class start not being able to afford their hospital bills. Um, and frankly, that trend has been inexorable for decades. We haven't quite gotten there yet, I don't think, but it's awfully close. And I think that one point of evidence for that is how close Bernie Sanders got to winning the Democratic nomination promoting this and how Bernie Sanders, as a promoter of Medicare for All, dictated the terms for the debate on health care during the Democratic primary. Everyone had either had to expl explain why they were for Bernie, Bernie's plan or why they were against it. And I think that may be a little bit of a turning point. We may have been too negative. Are there positives to say about the system? Well, I, I don't want to strain too hard to come up with good things to say. Health insurance in America always seems good until the day it's not. And you don't know when that day is going to come. And it may never happen. But that day where you get in a car wreck or you get diagnosed with an advanced stage of cancer and you find out or you need a cesarean section for your childbirth and you find out you now owe the hospital $75,000 even though you have insurance somehow, you know? Uh, so like the, the risk is there every single time you interact with the healthcare system, even though it is a low probability event, it is a very high risk one. My interactions with the healthcare system, though frustrating, and occasionally there is a bill I wasn't expecting, um, you know, it's fine, I'm not dead, but like we're, we're lucky. We work for a very large company that's able to offer us uh, extraordinarily good health benefits by comparison to other Americans. Right. Um, so, you know, my experience is a little skewed there. Like we, we are sort of in a relatively privileged position, even though either one of us tomorrow could get airlifted to a hospital by helicopter and owe someone $100,000. Right, right. That's, that's a real example. Right, right. So if you're poor and don't have any health care insurance, then... 
Wow. You're in debt forever. Right, right, right. And they, oh, and they come after you too. The debt collectors for the health, uh, healthcare industry in the United States are tenacious. Right, right. Well, okay, Jeff. Yeah. Thanks very much for that. My pleasure, sort of. <laughs> so just to end the show, um, I wanted to give listeners in the UK a bit of a cheat sheet, um, something they could say in the pub to their friends to make, them sound, make themselves sound knowledgeable about US politics. So um, if people in the UK are watching... Um, a US TV channel on election night, which one should they go for between CNN, NBC, or Fox News? What provides the most thorough coverage? Uh, I mean, I don't know. I think I, I guess I would watch NBC maybe or CNN. However, watching Fox News, uh, you know, it gives you a, a certain different perspective uh, right. when you're watching um, election night. Right, right. How, I mean, how, what, do you, have you, I haven't watched it. Is it. Does it get quite wild on there? I imagine it does. Well, I, I recall um, the 2012 election when Barack Obama won. There were a lot of um, pundits on air, including Karl Rove, the Bush White House strategist, who just couldn't believe that Barack Obama had won. And they, they required Megyn Kelly to go down to the room where their polling experts sit and to explain carefully that yes, Barack Obama did win. Okay, next question. What, why doesn't the president assume power that day or the next day like we would in the UK? If a, if a prime minister loses, they're out of Downing Street within, within 24 hours. Why doesn't that happen in the US? Ariel, what's the, what's the, I'm sure there's a very serious reasons for that. I mean, I sort of off the top of my head, I imagine it has a lot to do with just sort of the differences in political systems where you're not just, you know, putting in one person, you're putting in this entire team and this entire branch, you know, there's always a very involved transition process. So I think that's part of it is just the time in between that. Other than okay. that, you would probably have to ask a constitutional scholar. Paul, are you a constitutional scholar? Can you, can you fill in on that? I am. I'm not a constitutional scholar, but I will just say that it used to take until March 4th when okay. the new president would be inaugurated. Uh, and then uh, in 1932, when FDR defeated Herbert Hoover, there was this long stretching period between the time of the election to the inauguration where a lot of terrible, terrible things were happening and people really wanted the new president to come in and, and you know do a better job. Uh, and so they amended the constitution to move the date forward to January 20th. Now, if uh, some of these horrible nightmare scenarios about Donald Trump not leaving the White House happen this time around, maybe they'll move it forward again. Okay, next one. So we started this podcast in August, and the polling is pretty much the same now as it as it as it was then. And I, I wonder if that means that do election campaigns matter at all? Do they do they have much of an impact? Um, Ariel, do you think do 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 you think they amount to a hit of beans at all? One theory I've heard is that they matter, but they sort of tend to cancel each other out when both campaigns are sort of equally well run. Right. I think that in this case, campaigns do matter to some extent because they can have the ability to change what we think about a candidate. 
they can have a campaign that's incredibly poorly run or incredibly well run can obviously swing things. I think they probably matter less than the sort of day-to-day horse race might have you believe. Right, right. Paul, do they matter? I mean, obviously, the entire Trump presidency is testing the question whether anything matters at all. (laughs) Uh, Having, you know, we've seen his, his polls have pretty much stayed exactly the same, no matter, you know, if he's taking children away from their parents at the border or banning Muslims from entry or getting impeached or, you know, getting the coronavirus and staying it's swell. Um, it, it, it's a, it's kind of an odd thing. I'm sure a lot of political scientists will be able to study uh, campaign effects based on the existence of a non-campaign now. Right, right, right. D- does anything matter? That's kind of the, that's the big question I wanted to end this whole series on. That, that's perfect. Well, that's everything. Thanks for joining me, Ariel, Paul and Jeff. And thanks everyone for listening. And I hope American politics makes a little bit more sense. There's no doubt that the 2016 election cast a big shadow over this year's vote. But there are big differences from four years ago. Not least that Biden isn't Clinton and Trump is the incumbent, meaning he has a record to defend this time. But hey, what does anyone really know when the whole thing could be decided by 100,000 people in Florida? This will be our last weekly podcast, but hopefully we'll put something together in the aftermath of the vote. So do keep an eye out for that. Please do subscribe now for the last episodes and go back and listen to previous ones we put together and check out our other podcasts that include Commons People, our weekly look at UK politics, and they're available in all the usual places. Thanks very much and speak to you again.